0: Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary PSL. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Fear Not. All right, so if you were with us last week, you remember that while Paul was in Athens, he went toe-to-toe with the intellectual elites of his day. And of course, that was the members of what's known as the Areopagus. And so as Paul was addressing the Areopagus, he was very bold. You know, he called out their idolatry. He called out their polytheism, and what he did is that he gave them the right view of God. And so he talked about the Lord, who is one. And if you remember this from last week, the Lord, who is the creator, and the provider, and he's sovereign, and he's the father, and he's the judge, and one day, the Lord is going to judge the entire world by his one and only son, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Now, obviously most people in Athens um, uh, rejected the message, but some did come to the Lord, praise God, and one of the people who came to the Lord was one of the intellectual elites, one of the members of the Areopagus, and it's always a great thing when people come to Jesus. And so at some point, Paul packs his bags, he moves on to the next city, and that's where we're gonna pick up our study today in Acts 18, verse one. And so right now, if you're looking at Acts 18, one, say amen. amen. Okay, so check it out. After this, so after addressing the Areopagus, Paul left Athens and he went to what city? All right, so let's take a look at our map to get our geographical bearings. Paul leaves Athens, which would be off your screen to the right, and he heads 40 or 50 miles or so down to the city. Of Corinth. And so, if you remember from history, when the, when the Roman Empire defeated the Greek Empire, it was at the Battle of Corinth in 146 BC. And you need to know that the Romans just demolished that city. And so, that city lay in ruins for almost 100 years or more, about 102 years, until Julius Caesar came along and he reinstituted it as a Roman province in 44. BC and then Corinth just took off and it became the capital of Achaia and it became a very flourishing city. And so Corinth, a flourishing city and a famous city and it was filled with people who knew, knew how to do three things really well. They knew how to work hard, they knew how to play hard and sadly these people in Corinth, they knew how to party hard. All right, so we're gonna start with the first two positive traits and then we'll get to the last one here in a moment, but first of all, the Corinthians knew how to work hard because their city was a thriving commercial center. Corinth, if you notice there on your map, was located near an isthmus or a land bridge that linked mainland Greece to the north with the Peloponnese region to the south. In the terms of Paul in first century AD, That land bridge, that isthmus would uh, link northern Achaia with southern Achaia. It's also, that city, Corinth, is situated between two gulfs. And so you have the Corinth gulf to the north, and that led to the Ionian Sea, and then you have the Saronic gulf there to the south, and that led out to the Aegean Sea. And so because of its strategic location right there, this city, that we're talking about today in Acts chapter 18, it was um, it, it commanded, it controlled the trade routes of the day from the northeast to the southwest by land across the isthmus, but they also controlled the, the trade route by sea from the northwest down to the southeast because this city, Corinth, had actually two ports on each of the gulfs that I've already talked about. So lots of trade going on, lots of economic prosperity going on in this city. And so because Corinth was so prosperous, it attracted many people uh, that that came to the city to take advantage of the many jobs. And so these people knew how to work hard. And by the way, I think it's a great thing. Because how many of you would agree with me this this afternoon that a strong work ethic is a very important quality to have in your life? Right? Have a strong work ethic. Ethic. And by the way, parents, can I just encourage you for a moment? As you're raising your kids, you need to know that you have a responsibility to prepare them for adulthood. Moms and dads, you have a responsibility to pour in your kids in such a way that you prepare them for the real world. I'm so glad that I I grew up with a mom and dad, and you know what they made me and my two big brothers do? A lot? Work. We were outside mowing the grass, we were dusting, we were cleaning the bathrooms, we were vacuuming, and then we had our own little lawn business. We were going around the the neighborhood and mowing lawns, and and, um, we were pushing cars whenever South Tampa would flood way back in the 70s, helping people. so my brothers and I, we knew how to work hard. Did that just come naturally? No, it was because our parents poured that into us. And so parents, can I just encourage you in this generation that you're not doing your kid any good by letting your kid play video games for six, seven, eight, nine hours, right? Hey, put them to work. Tell them to get outside and mow the lawn. You say, you don't know my teenager. They'll rebel, they'll yell at me. And I would remind you, who's the parent, who's the kid? Now you parents of these little kids, here's what you need to know. The parents of the little kids, it's much easier to make them do what you say when they're little. And then they kind of get used to it when they become big teenagers, all right? And so some of you guys I know are behind the curveball, but stick with it. We're praying for you. You've got to prepare your kids for the real world. The Corinthians knew how to work hard. But not only that, they knew how to play hard. Corinth had this big, giant, outdoor theater. It sat up almost 20,000 people. If you go to Corinth, you can actually visit the ruins of that theater today. And the city hosted what's called the Isthmian Games. And so people came from all over the Roman Empire to Corinth every other year to watch men compete in boxing, wrestling, chariot races. They watched the women compete in music and poetry. And I think that's cool. I think it's great that they knew how to work hard. I think it's great they knew how to play hard because here's what I know, sports and music is a great way to teach certain character traits to your kids. And sports and music, moms and dads, will help your kids stay out of trouble. I can't tell you how much trouble I probably missed in my teenage years because I spent hours on a soccer field kicking a ball around. And I thank God for that. And so parents, I wanna encourage you to pray about whether or not God's calling your kid to get involved in sports or your kid to get involved in music. It can keep them out of trouble and it can teach them some really good character traits. And so the Corinthians knew how to work hard, the Corinthians knew how to play hard, but sadly, these people also knew how to party hard. Corinth, if you study history, was a sleazy seaport city and it had a reputation for promiscuity. In fact, there's this ancient phrase, right? The ancient phrase was, to act like a Corinthian. And that ancient phrase, to act like a Corinthian, was synonymous with to commit sexual immorality. And so if you lived in the first century AD and you had sex outside of marriage, they would say, man, you're acting like a Corinthian. And it was really bad in Corinth. In Corinth, they had this acropolis or this high hill that's known as the Acrocorinth. You can still see it today, again, if you ever travel to Corinth. And that Acropolis, that high hill, rose 2,000 feet above sea level, and it was the location of the temple of Aphrodite. So there you can see some of the partial ruins. The temple back then, in Paul's day, was much larger than this. Today, just some small ruins that you can see. But Aphrodite, in Greek mythology, was the goddess of sexual love. And her temple had 1,000 priestesses. And so these women were actually female slaves, and what they did at night is they would walk the streets of Corinth, and these Aphrodite priestesses would sell their bodies in order to raise money for their cult. And Paul packed his bags in Athens, and he went to this city. He went to this corrupt city, why? To share the gospel and to plant a church. Now, some self-righteous people would cross their arms and say, well, why does he even bother? Those people are so wicked, they're so vile. Why would Paul even waste his time? So if you're taking notes, here's your first, your first point, your first fill-in, here's why Paul went to Corinth. Ladies and gentlemen, God loves us and he wants to change us. God loves us, and he wants to change us. The first thing that we gotta understand is that God loves us. Now listen to this. He loves all of us. Look at what Jesus said in John three sixteen. Everybody knows it by heart, but check it out. For God so loved the good people. Is that what it says? For God so loved the what? The world. world. That's all people. So much so that he gave his only son that whoever believes, the word in the Greek is pistis, it means to trust, to have confidence in, to depend upon. Whoever believes, Leaves in him, excuse me, should not perish but have eternal life. And so the reason that Paul went to Corinth is because God loves the whole world. (laughs) And we have to be careful, those of us who've been going to church for years, this can happen in our hearts and we don't even realize that we're all of a sudden, after living you know, like this righteous light for so long, all of a sudden we don't even realize it's happening in our hearts, but we're crossing our arms and we're looking down our noses on people who are sinners. Well, guess what? God loves them. He loves them so much He gave His Son. And so we got to come to grips with this truth that God loves everybody. Ladies and gentlemen, he loves good people, and God loves bad people. He loves religious people, he loves irreligious people. God loves moral people, and God loves immoral people. He loves, listen to this. Just hold your applause for a second, okay? We can all praise God together here in a moment. But God loves drunkards, God loves pimps, drug addicts, prostitutes, thieves, gang members, as much as he loves nice, decent, religious people. He loves everybody who's taking in breath right now on planet Earth. That's our God. We can thank him right now for his incredible love. So don't have the self-righteous heart attitude where you look down on people who are struggling with sin and think that God loves you more than he loves that guy in the gutter, no. God loves the guy in the gutter as much as he loves you. That's our God. That's his unchanging nature. God is love. And as I said, he loves people so much, he gave his only son that whoever believes, can I encourage you, don't complicate the gospel. Stop complicating the gospel. Just believe. Pistis. Have confidence in, trust in, depend on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross as payment for all your sins, and that he rose again. Believe in him, and guess what? You're not gonna perish. You're gonna have eternal life, that's God's word. God said it, I believe it, right, that settles it. Now, again, self-righteous people will cross their arms and look at that and say, okay, so what you're saying is that people just have to believe in Jesus, and then they can just continue to love and practice their sin? And what I would say is, why would they want to? Pastor Andrew said it earlier. Romans two teaches us that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. God's love, God's kindness, that happens first and that motivates us to repent. I would also argue that if someone's conversion is real, then they're not gonna continue to love and practice their sin because there's gonna be a change in their life. So here's what we do, we speak the truth in love. We tell everybody God loves everybody because it's true, but we don't compromise on sin. And so look at what Paul will later write to the church that is planted in the city where he is in Acts 18. He says, do you not know, Corinthians, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, and by the way, you say, well, what about the women? Well, Paul covered that in Romans 1 26. Okay, so it's men or women who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. You can't get any clearer than that, but look at the next verse, the very next verse, and such, shout out the next word, word. Were, Now in your Bible, were isn't all caps, I capped it all because I wanna emphasize the fact, such were some of you, Paul says to the Christians in the Corinthian church. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so the church of Corinth was filled with people who used to practice all these sins that Paul has named, but when they experienced a genuine conversion, the Spirit of God came in, and the Spirit of God began to change them to the place that he says, under the inspiration of the Spirit, such were some of you. He says, such were sexually immoral. You were idolaters, you were adulterers, you were men who practiced homosexuality, you were thieves, you were greedy, you were drunkards, you were revilers. You were swindlers. That used to be your identity, but not anymore. Now you belong to Jesus. You have a new identity, and you're a child of God, and he's changing you from the inside out. You see, that's the power of the gospel, ladies and gentlemen, and that is the power of Christ inside of us. Yes, we should clap. We should thank God for the change that he makes in our lives. So yes, we preach God loves everyone, but yes, we do never compromise on the issue of sin. And so does God love sinners, yes or no? You tell me. Here's the thing though, he loves us too much to leave us where we are. And so that's why he wants to change us. And so Paul goes to Corinth, because God loves the whole world. And verse two says that he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, that's a region up on the Black Sea up north, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, why? Because Claudius, Claudius is the current Caesar, here in Acts chapter 18, the next Caesar will be the wicked infamous Nero, but because Claudius, the current Caesar, had commanded all the Jews to do what? To leave Rome. Now lots of speculation on this, I dug a little bit and what I found out was that there's already, scholars believe, a church that has been established in Rome. Lots of Jews are coming to Jesus as Messiah in Rome. Lots of unbelieving Jews are upset. There's a ruckus, and Claudius, the Caesar, says, just all y'all get out of my city. And so Priscilla and Aquila, apparently, are already believers in Christ, part of the church of Rome, kicked out. Now they're leaving Rome, and they're going to Corinth. And it says, the end of verse two, that Paul went to see them. Verse three, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with Priscilla and Aquila and worked, for they were, what, by trade? Tent makers. So every rabbi had a trade, and Paul would fall back on his trade when he needed money. Verse four, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. And so while he's in Corinth, Paul meets Priscilla and Aquila. It's a great couple. They become his fellow laborers, not just in tent making work, but also in church planting work. And I, I, I look back at 15 and a half years of ministry here at Calvary and I'm so glad that my wife and I didn't move from Jupiter to poor St. Lucie and plant this church alone. I'm so glad that we had the Priscilla and Aquilas who came alongside and we all joined in and we all did the work the point where now we have 21 people on staff here at Calvary. And and I'm so glad I don't have to do ministry alone. I don't have to wear all these different hats. I don't have to make every hospital visit, do every wedding, do every funeral, do every counseling session, You know, run the lights in the back. I'm so glad, and you should be too, that I'm not standing center stage playing a guitar and singing because there would be nobody here at church. (laughs) I'm so glad that I've People, fellow workers, men and women, not just paid staff, but hundreds of ministry partners who are in this church serving the Lord, and it's all for the Lord. And so if you're thankful for friends who can join you in the work of ministry, thank God for all those friends. We thank God for that. More friends are coming. Look at verse five. And when Silas, remember him? And Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the what? The word. Now, if you have the NASB, it says that Paul began devoting himself completely to the word. Why? In other words, apparently, he stops making tents right here, and he devotes himself completely to the word. Well, because Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia And I'm just gonna give you the verses, you can look them up later, but if you compare Philippians 4.15 with 2 Corinthians 11.9, apparently the church of Philippi sends a financial gift to Paul while he's in Corinth, and he's able to be freed up from secular work to pour himself completely into the word of God. And look at what he does. It says halfway down verse five that Paul was testifying to the Jews that the Christ, the Christ, the Messiah, was who at the end of verse five? Jesus, do you see that? So important, the Messiah is Jesus. Verse six, they didn't like this message. And when they opposed and reviled Paul, he shook out his garments and he said to them, your blood, remember that word blood, your blood be on your own heads I'm innocent, from now on, I'm going to the who? The Gentiles. And so Paul warns the Jews of coming judgment in the synagogue every Saturday. He warns them, God, guys, judgment is coming, judgment is coming, and then he encourages them. Hey, you can escape the judgment. Believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's our Christ. Give your lives to Jesus, right? And so what's their response? They don't heed. That leads you to your next point if you're taking notes, you wanna fill in the blank, that we should warn people of coming judgment, just like Paul, and then, don't stop there. (laughs) You know, you ever see the guy on the street corner, you know, and all he's doing is yelling damnation to cars as they go by? Well, there's more to the story, come on. We should warn people of coming judgment and then encourage them that salvation can be secured through faith in Christ. Now just know when you do that, and I wonder how many of you are doing that, because I just want, I want, you, I want you to know that this is one of the responsibilities of a Christian, that as you and I are living our lives at work, home, friends, family, neighbors, whatever, and God opens doors, we have got to walk through those doors, ladies and gentlemen. It cannot ever be us four no more, and so as you, and I are warning people and as we're encouraging them, just know that there's gonna be times when some people don't like what we have to say. What happened to Paul in verse six? It says they opposed him and they reviled him. And so what does he do? He shakes his garment, right? Kinda like when Jesus said, just knock the dust off your sandals if they don't receive your message, apostles. Paul, he really gets into it, he shakes his garment And he says to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. I'm reading this and I'm thinking about Ezekiel, right? Look at what God, way back in the Old Testament, look at what God said to his prophet Ezekiel. He said, whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give Israel warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die and you give him no warning? nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life. That wicked person shall die for his iniquity. But Ezekiel, you know, Zeke, come on. His blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, like Paul's warning the Jews in the synagogue of Corinth, if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness, or from his wicked way, he'll, he'll die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. In other words, you'll be innocent from being guilty of, of their blood. And so it's very interesting to me, I think Paul is thinking about this passage as he's talking to the unbelieving Jews and as he's shaking his garment and as he's saying, your blood's on your own heads, I'm innocent. So he tries to warn them about coming judgment. He tries to encourage them. You can escape the judgment through faith in Jesus as the Christ. Again, with, instead of heeding his warning, they oppose him. They revile him. And he says, I'm innocent of your blood. So this, this Ezekiel passage should be sobering to us, right? It should, it should kind of weigh on us as we think about our responsibility to share the good news of the gospel today with people. Like Paul, ladies and gentlemen, we need to be warning people of coming judgment, but don't stop there, right? There's good news that follows the bad news. We also should encourage people, hey, all of us, we're all sinners, but we can escape this judgment by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. And what's gonna happen if someone listens to you? What is gonna happen if someone gives their life to Christ? Look at Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified, that word means to be declared righteous. Since therefore we have now been justified by our good works, is that what it says? Okay, so help me out. Since therefore we have now been declared righteous by, what's the next two words? His blood. Much more shall we be, what's the word? Saved, Saved by him, Christ from the wrath of God. So bad news. The wrath of God is coming. Good news. Jesus Christ paid for our sins and absorbed the wrath of God on the cross and rose again the third day, defeating death, hell, and sin, and he wants to save you. If you'll turn to him in repentance and faith, have you done that? Have you turned to Christ? Please, please, please do not walk out of this building today thinking, yeah, God will accept me. I'm a pretty good guy. Listen, that's a false gospel. You've got to come to Christ in repentance and faith and allow his blood to wash you. And that's how we get saved. It's Christ alone. Amen? Amen. All right, so at the end of verse six, Paul says, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles, and then in verse seven, he left there, he left the synagogue, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God, and his house was next door to the synagogue. And so Paul's like, being all dramatic, shaking out his garment, he says, I'm done with you guys, I'm going to the Gentiles. He walks out the front door of the synagogue and he goes right next door <laughs> to a guy named Justice's house. And Justice, who's he, he's a Gentile, He's a worshiper of God, that means he believed in and respected and honored the God of Israel. Let me ask you this question real quick. Is it enough to just believe in the God of Israel? No, Acts 4.12 says, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, the name of Jesus. And so justice, praise God, not only respects the one true God of Israel, but he believes in his son who, by the way, is one in being with the Father, and he gives his life to Christ, and Paul shakes his hand and uses his house, apparently, as a base for Paul's uh, ministry there in Corinth. And so what we have now is something very cool that happens. Look at verse eight. It says that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. Now, this is like the head honcho, right? Crispus believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And more good news, many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were, what happened after they believed? They were baptized. And so many people came to Christ in Corinth, including the head honcho, the ruler of the synagogue. And Man, can you imagine the shockwaves that went through the Jewish community there in Corinth? Their leader, the boss, the ruler of the synagogue, is turning his life over to Jesus as Messiah. And I wonder what they felt, the unbelieving Jews, as this guy gets up, leaves his synagogue, and goes next door to hang out with Paul. That probably made a lot of people mad. It probably made a lot of people at Justice's house really happy. But I want you you to notice one more thing at the end of verse eight before we move on. So it says at the end of verse eight, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed, so everybody say the word believed. Believed. And were baptized, say the word baptized. Baptized. So once again, how often have we seen this in Acts? First you believe, and then you're baptized. Okay, so you knew I had to say it. If you have not been baptized, what's the word, church family? Since. Since. You have believed in Jesus. Listen, infants cannot believe in Jesus. Infants cannot receive Christ. Okay, so don't reverse the order and say baptized and then you believe. No, no, no. The order in the scripture is believe and then you take your public stand of faith, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you get baptized. So if you haven't been baptized since you believed in Christ, good news, we can dunk you in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit right there on Thursday, December the 5th at our first Thursday gathering. And if you haven't been to one, they're awesome. We come together, we have a short 10 or 15 minute devotional. We have communion and then we, bapt- we pray and then we have baptisms. And so please obey the Lord's command, it's a commandment. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commands. And so some of you are putting this off for some reason. You're a believer, but you haven't been baptized since you believed. And so don't put it off anymore. Go to our website, click on next steps, click on baptism, and sign up to be baptized on December the 5th. And so, with all the blessings that Paul's experiencing in Corinth, you'd think that, man, he'd be on top of the world, right? No fear, no worry. It's just not true. He's human like us. All right, so now look at verse 9. It says that the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. Okay, this is not a dream. If it was a dream, Paul would be sleeping. But this is a a vision, which means that Paul's awake in the middle of the night. And Jesus comes to him in a vision. And he says this, I love these words. Do not be afraid. Again, one of the most oft-repeated, if not the most oft-repeated commandments in the Bible, Genesis through Revelation, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, why? Verse 10, I am with you, and no one will attack you, at least here in Corinth, right? He's not talking about Philippi, he's not talking about Lystra. This is the commandment, The the, the promise of, of God's presence is unconditional. The promise of his protection is conditional based on his sovereignty. And so I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people, praise the Lord. Verse 11, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So why did the Lord have to tell Paul, don't be afraid? Here's why. Because Paul was afraid. And by the way, think about what he's already been through. In Lystra, they started throwing rocks at him. And they stoned him and left him for dead outside the city. And then, a little later in history, he goes to Philippi. And they tear off his robe and his buddy Silas's robe. They beat their backs till they're bloodied and they throw him in the inner prison. And then he goes to Thessalonica and there's a mob, an angry mob, trying to find him so that they can hurt him. He's got to escape. Then he, then he runs over to Berea and the trouble follows him there and he's got to escape to Athens, right? So wherever Paul goes, here's what you need to know, that great blessings were often followed by great difficulty. Now, if you're with me, say amen here, right? You got to stay with me here because I don't want you to be disillusioned when bad stuff starts to happen in your life. Because some guy on TV, you know, said that life as a Christian is always prosperity. It's not. Great blessings are often followed by great difficulty. And so what's happening in Paul's life is he gets to Corinth and there's great blessings again. Crispus gets saved, many people get saved, and then Paul, you know, instead of being on the top of the world with no fear, no worry, he's laying in bed and apparently he can't sleep. And I wonder if Paul, as he's laying there, you ever been there in the middle of the night, whatever, 2.30, 3 o'clock, you can't sleep? And I wonder if he's thinking, man, my ministry is being blessed again in Corinth. When's the next beating gonna take place, right? When are they gonna throw me in prison? When are they gonna stone me and leave me for dead here in this town? But how many of you guys know that God is so good He speaks to us just when we need it. Here comes Jesus in a vision, right? And what does Jesus say in the vision? Again, in verse nine, he says, Paul, don't be afraid. Can you imagine what Paul felt like when he saw Jesus again? Don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Don't be silent for I am with you. The Lord encouraged Paul by promising his presence. Now, can we apply this to our lives today? Paul, the great apostle Paul, experienced fear. And here's what I know. Everybody in this room, everybody watching on Facebook right now, everybody listening later on the podcast or the website, every single one of us will deal with fear in our lives at some level or another. Now, here's the problem with a lot of guys. It's called ego. Right, And we we're like, we wear the T-shirts, no fear, right? And we're so big and bad, and we don't wanna to admit to our fear. We don't wanna talk about it. We don't wanna talk about with some guys or girls who lay awake at night and they can't sleep. We don't wanna talk about the anxiety attacks. We don't wanna talk about the stress and all the conflicting thoughts, right? Because fear in our culture is equated with weakness, So we'd rather hide it in the dark than go out and get some help. Can I just encourage you about something? Everybody deals with fear. So the question isn't whether we deal with fear or not. The question is, how can I overcome fear? And that leads to your next point. If you're taking notes, we can overcome fear by meditating on Christ's presence. Christ's presence. Now I'm not teaching it exhaustive message on fear right now. I'm just giving you one point that'll really help you if you apply it to your life. We gotta meditate on Christ's presence. Jesus said to Paul, don't be afraid. Why? For I am with you. And so what did he do? He reminded Paul of his presence, right? And so we need that same reminder in our lives today. So so here's some really practical things that you can do to help you the next time you're overwhelmed with fear. I wanna encourage you if you're an old school person, grab some three by five cards and write down some verses, on the three, not, not right now, but later. Write down some, three, some verses on some three by five cards concerning God's promise of his presence in your life. If you're more of a techie person, grab your phone, go to the notes page, and type in those verses on the notes page. But here's what I want you to do. Once you have those verses, take some time out of your busy schedule, right? Because here, here's what I know. Jesus told his disciples how many times in their busy schedule, hey guys, let's come apart. Let's come apart. Let's go over here. Let's spend some time. Let's pray. Let's be quiet. And for some of you right here, right now in this room, you're so busy like the hamster on the wheel. Listen, if you don't come apart, you're gonna come apart. Listen, I'm trying to help you. And so grab your notes page on your phone, grab your three by five cards and go for a prayer walk. Get out in God's beautiful creation. Maybe it's the beach, maybe it's the park, maybe it's the lake of tradition, wherever it is, but then get outside under God's beautiful creation and walk around and after you've written out those promises of God concerning his presence in your life, meditate on those promises. I'll just give you a few examples. Meditate on 1 Corinthians six nineteen. This is a great place to start. Paul says, "Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God?" Now this this excites me. Why? Because you know I, I'm really into the Bible and I'm really into theology. And what I understand as I'm studying the Bible and I'm understanding theology is this: that we are so mind blowing blessed in this new covenant age that we live in, what's called the dispensation of grace. Ladies and gentlemen, ever since the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and when he went up, the Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost. Ever since that day, guess what? We get to enjoy the fact that the Holy Spirit is in us and we're sealed until the day of redemption. God in us. Let that permeate you this morning. God, if you are born again Christian, God is in you. And the old, the old covenant guys and women, they didn't have that privilege. All the heroes of the faith in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would come upon them and then would leave. Come upon and withdraw. No, but we got a made in the new covenant age. He's here. He's here to stay. So memorize that. Meditate on that as you're walking around with your cards or your phone. Meditate on Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. Look at what God says. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will up What more does he have to do for crying out loud? I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. And so once again we see: don't be afraid. Why? Because God says. I'm gonna be with you. And so why in the world should we never give in to fear? Because we're so big and bad? No, we should never give in to fear because God is our Father. And as I said last week, he's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, eternal, sovereign, and he lives in us. And so we can overcome fear by meditating on this, that he's gonna strengthen us and help us and uphold us, and then we can pray, Lord, thank you so much that you're always with me. Meditate on Hebrews 13, five and six. Look at this. God has said, I will, what's the next word? Never. Never, okay, do you believe God or not? You see, God's integrity is on the line here. <laughs> How many of you believe that God is a promise keeper and not a promise breaker, right? I'm gonna wait till every hand is up. I'm sorry, I just have to do this. God is a promise keeper, not a promise breaker. When he says something, his integrity's on the line. Who are we to disbelieve him? Again, if you're a born again Christian, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I feel so bad for people, genuine Christians, laying in their bed at night, wide awake, worrying whether they're gonna go to heaven or hell. Are you kidding me? It's time to get past that and move on to maturity in your Christian life. God loves you. His son died for you. All your sins, past, present, future are paid in full. He rose again to make sure that everything's legit. And not only that, he says, I'm in you and I'm never gonna leave you or forsake you. What part, I can hear God saying, do you not understand? You're going to heaven. Stop obsessing about hell. I experienced hell on the cross for you. So you wouldn't have to go there. Accept my forgiveness, accept my love, believe my promise and move on in your Christian life. The reason Satan wants to get some of you under this fear of I don't know if I'm saved or not is because he's trying to paralyze you from becoming a lifelong follower of Christ. Just believe his promise, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord, he's my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. And so meditate on that verse and then pray as you're out there, Lord, thank you that you'll never leave me and you'll never forsake me. And then finally, there's hundreds, right? But I'll give you one more. During this Christmas season, meditate on Matthew 1, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they'll call his name Emmanuel. So one of the titles of Jesus is Emmanuel, which means, who is with us? God. And so if Jesus is Emmanuel, then Jesus is who? God, do you see that? Not Michael the Archangel, not a created being. He's one in being with the Father. He's the eternal Word, he is God. And his promise is, I'm with you. And so God is so serious about his, the promise of his presence, what does he do? He calls one of his titles, Emmanuel, I'm with you. And so man, as you're out there with your three by five card or your phone, just say something like this, Jesus, thank you that you're my Emmanuel. I believe this promise. Now as you're doing this, just so you know, I'm just gonna give you a heads up and just kind of, a, uh, just prepare yourself. As you're doing this, as you're meditating on God's word, you're believing his promises, You're Worshiping him and looking at his beautiful creation. Hey, don't be surprised if all of a sudden God just wraps you up in his arms and you can feel him everywhere. A tangible experience of his presence. I had a friend, because I always encourage people to do prayer walks, and he came to me one day at church and he said, Pastor, I'm so glad I finally did what you said. I went for a prayer walk. These are his words, and God showed up. And I'm thinking, you know what? God never left you, you're his son. But what he did by his grace is that he poured out his spirit upon you and you could, in a tangible way, as you were meditating on him and having this attitude of gratitude, believing his promises, thanking him for his beautiful creation. Come apart, or some of you are gonna come apart. Especially, I mean, what what kind of timing is this? Thanksgiving, December? Christmas, New Year's. Man, please don't put Jesus on the back burner in the next six weeks, and don't put his church on the back burner in the next six weeks. And so don't be afraid, Paul, verse nine. I am with you, verse 10. No one's gonna attack you or harm you. Look at the end of verse 10. For I have many in this city who are my people. This is crazy. There's Corinthians who are not even saved yet. But how many of you know that God knows who are his? Just like in Port St. Lucie. There's so many in our city who are not even saved yet. Guess what? They're coming. Verse 11, and he stayed. He's so encouraged by this vision. He stayed in Corinth a year and six months teaching a man-centered message based on human-felt needs. Is that what it says? No, teaching the what of what? The Word of God, I don't know how we miss it. Over and over and over again, teaching the Word of God among them, and now I want you to see the promise of Jesus, his presence and his protection is fulfilled in verses 12 through 17, and then I'll make some concluding remarks. And so verse 12, but when Galio, was proconsul of Achaia. So that means he's the bigwig, the politician, he's in charge, his word goes. He's got the final word, except that he does report directly to the, the Roman Senate. So when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews in Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, the judgment seat, the Bema. Verse 13, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now when they said the law there, they're talking about Roman law. The reason I'm saying that is because in the Roman Empire, Judaism was a recognized legal religion. And so what these Jews are trying to persuade the politician here is that Paul is not preaching Judaism. He's preaching something else And so he's breaking Roman law, verse 14. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews. He doesn't even give Paul a chance to talk. The politician says, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, Jewish law, Judaism, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be judge of these things. And so Gallio, like a lot of Roman politicians in the first century, looked at Christianity as a sect of Judaism, Judaism recognized as a legal religion in the Roman Empire. So get out of my face. And verse 16 says, and he drove them from the tribunal. That drove means it got physical because the Jews are really upset. They don't want to leave. And look at look at the anti-Semitism in verse 17. It says, now remember, the judgment seat was in the marketplace, so there's a big crowd. Lots of Gentiles are around, and verse 17 says, and they, in the context, that's Greeks, Gentiles, who, by the way, are anti-Semitic here, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, the guy who took Crispus's place because Crispus got saved, okay, the guy who's bringing the accusations against Paul, these anti Semitic Gentiles grab him, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him. This is sad. In front of the tribunal, and look at what the politician does. And Gallio paid no attention. I think he's anti Semitic too. No attention to any of this. So there's a lot I could say about this, but I got to wrap it up. And so he, here's the main point Paul didn't have to say a word. God in his sovereignty kept the promise of his presence and the promise of his protection. And how many of you guys know the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and God moves Gallio, and Gallio stands up for Paul and says, hey, this is nonsense and drives them away. This is an example, ladies and gentlemen, that the Lord was shielding Paul as Paul walked in integrity. And so here's your last point. Stay with me all the way to the end here. Your last point is actually a verse, Proverbs 2, 7, and that is that the Lord is a shield to those who walk in what? Integrity. Character. Speaking truth, not speaking lies. Doing right, not doing what's wrong. And so... Here's what you need to know. As Paul was living with integrity, God became his shield. God guarded him, God defended him. Now again, it's all under God's sovereignty because sometimes Paul got beat in Philippi, right? But he got beat in Philippi for God's glory, for his own spiritual good, and for the salvation of the Philippian jailer. So sometimes as God's shielding he lets some things through, but, but here's the thing, God is in charge, God is sovereign, and when we walk in integrity, God's got a shield over you too. And Paul says, I don't care, beat me all day long, I'm gonna do what's right. So my encouragement, church family, before we close in prayer is this, do right. Every day when you wake up, you're gonna have an opportunity that day to choose right or wrong, right? How many of you guys know that every single day, our ethics are challenged. It might be little things like how much too much change was given to you from a clerk somewhere, or it might be big things like cheating on your taxes. Whoa, it got really quiet in here. <laughs> I want to encourage you to do what's right every day. Do right. Walk in integrity. There's going to be times, you know, when you when you mess up, but, but admit it and quit it, and then start doing right again. There's gonna be times where you're gonna be tempted to lie to cover your rear end. Tell the truth and let the chips fall. That's the kind of people God's looking for. Just do right. And as we do that, God becomes our shield. Just like he was a shield for the Apostle Paul.